Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to New Heights Show on Education. This is your host, Kathy Woodring. This week's topic is American Exceptionalism. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group educational resources to help reach your goals. Before starting the American Exceptionalism Review, the last episode, The Good of Corporations, from Heritage.org, will be finished, which ended with mention that the Roman Orthodox Church was forced to become the servant of the party. Those churches which were not infiltrated were suppressed, and all corporate action by religious bodies other than the act of worship was forbidden. On August 18, 1792, the French revolutionaries decreed that, quote, a state that is truly free ought not to suffer when its bosom, within its bosom, any corporation, not even such as being dedicated to public instruction, have merited well of the party. That was the prelude to the closing of private schools and the confiscation of the assets of small clubs and societies that have grown around the church whether for the relief of poverty or for the sake of companionship and worship. The effect was a depersonalization of society as associations lost their personal identities and were reduced to mere concentrations of power, which were in turn seized by the state. In our time, the state has never been more threatening than when it has set out to destroy free associations. For then, it makes itself the enemy of civil society and is on the path toward totalitarian control. The destruction of the little platoons is indeed usually the first policy of any revolutionary government. The process of depersonalization was later resuscitated by Vladimir Lenin through the device of the Potemkin Institution. All associations were to be infiltrated by the Communist Party and made subservient to it. They could retain no autonomy, and any attempt to do so was visited with the harshest punishment. Other institutions that had acquired moral personality, universities, schools, clubs, and societies, were either destroyed or turned into Potemkin replicas, private charities, were exporiated, and then suppressed. One of the most striking features of the communist order, as the author encountered it during the 1970s in Eastern Europe, was the fact that charities were illegal. 
This author was involved in running two of them, and so began his life as a criminal. Janos Kadar, during his first year as Minister of Justice after the Communist takeover of Hungary in 1948, personally saw to the destruction of 5,000 associations, not only small businesses, but chess clubs, brass bands, discussion circles, reading clubs, women's institutions, churches, scouts, and schools. All association was absorbed into and controlled by the state. This was Frederick Engels' prophecy fulfilled. Quote, the government of men was replaced by, quote, the administration of things. All persons, both corporate and natural, were reduced to things, mere instruments in the party's machinery for total control. The result was a society entirely instrumentalized in which all cooperation was made to depend on the one overriding purpose of building socialism. Subjects of the communist state were like soldiers in an army, recruited for the end that was to be the final source of the bond between them. They were to act together under a single system of command, without any attachments, without love for the past, without an inherited identity or culture, without any object of affection that would compete with the overriding purpose. In other words, the attack on corporations, authentic in in the attack in other words, in the attack of a corporation's authentic individuality died. All associations, if they could be called that, were kept together by the top down commands of the party. And those commands were justified in terms of the official goal, in which, as it happened, nobody believed. The work of the secret police was to control and, if possible, prevent free association so that society would be, be entirely atomized by suspicion and fear. Each person would be allowed to secure what he or she could secure in his own private sphere, behind the back of the great machine that gave the orders, but all association was to occur under the guidance of the party. The communist citizen was to be the perfect homo economicus, motivated by rational self-interest to advance a purpose in which he did not believe. Alternative identities and motivations were not tolerated. Growing hostility between the state and America's little platoons. Now that the truth is out, no sane, truly freedom-loving person wants to go down that path. Nevertheless, we should recognize the increasing hostility between the state and the little platoons here in America, too. It issues from the same cause, which is the desire to flatten society and control people in the interest of a dominant ideology, regardless of their spontaneous associative habits. For example, legal fiat has almost abolished all male clubs in this country, even if men want to associate with other men because they like that kind of thing and thereby create webs of support and mutual obligation. They now can do so only in ways authorized by the state as special exemptions to a regime of non-discrimination. The reason for this legislative move is ideological, part of the feminist campaign to recognize society in accordance with a radical and comprehensive agenda, 
non-discrimination laws has similarly exerted the state's control of all employment so that race, religion, family, and even increasingly sexual orientation must all be discounted by the employer, and again for reasons that seem impeccably right to the liberal conscience. In other words, there is a growing top-down regulation of associations, which is tantamount to a state-sponsored suspicion of them. Associations now need elaborate permissions if they are to exist, and their moral personality is under close scrutiny from the guardians of public morality, a morality that tends to be secular, egalitarian, liberationist, and to a great extent anti-Christian in its emphasis. The breakdown in legal protection for corporate persons is actually harming private associations and harming individual welfare and autonomy. This is precisely the goal of those who stir up popular, populist anger against private associations by citing examples of truly lamentable abuse of the system. Top-down moral control does not always win out in the courts, as we have seen in Hobby Lobby case, and we saw equally in the yet more interesting 2010 case of the Boy Scouts and their building in Philadelphia. The Boy Scouts had constructed a building at their own expense on property owned by the city of Philadelphia. Upon its completion in 1929, the building became the property of the city, remaining for the exclusive use of the Boy Scouts. For almost 80 years, the Boy Scouts paid no rent to the city, but maintained and improved the building until the city proposed to expel them. Since the, since the refusal of the Scouts to recruit homosexual scoutmasters violated the city's non-discrimination laws. In the end, the Scouts won the right to their building, but it was a close-run thing. Gradually, however, it is becoming clear that the morality of the liberal establishment is being built into federal legislation as a matter of course, and sometimes read into the Constitution by an activist Supreme Court. As was the case with the French Revolution, the first targets of suspicion are the little platoons, the associations that grow from ordinary people uniting around a shared purpose or for no other purpose than that of being together. Such an association reflects and shapes the value-forming aspects of the human condition and hence is naturally seen as a provocation by those who wish to control the habits of their fellow citizens. This is especially so today when the values of the little platoons frequently fail to reflect the distant and more cold-hearted visions of a, quote, better society as these take shape in the imagination of the liberal legislature. Hearing rumors of the goings-on at rodeos and fox hunts and all-male camping, trips and revivalist meetings at gun clubs, at pigeon shoots, such a legislator may feel a strong urge to put a stop to such things. In a civilized and rational country, he might say, these pastimes should be strictly controlled and without seeing that this secular, secular 
and supposedly inclusive morality might be as distasteful to rural rural America as rural America is to him. He spontaneously builds his prejudices into legislative proposals. Of course, it could also go the other way. A conservative legislator might want to put an end to casinos and betting shops and might have qualms about plans to build a mosque in his neighborhood or to open a school meditation. To him, these private associations might be a threat to all that makes his life worthwhile. It has therefore been the constant preoccupation of classical liberals like John Stuart Mill to find some criterion that will distinguish the legitimate from the illegitimate use of the state's coercive power in controlling and forbidding free association. Obamacare's challenge to free association. Perhaps this explains some of the motivations behind the health care law, forcing businesses to provide contraception, sterilization, and abortion-inducing drugs can easily be presented as part of the health care agenda. Yet this mandate runs roughshod over many good private associations. The Little Sisters of the Poor, for example, a group of Catholic nuns, argues that being forced to provide health insurance coverage for such services violates their rights under Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, or RFRA. While the lawsuit refers to the substantial burden placed on the religious exercise of the Little Sisters, one can all see one can also see real association damage to them. This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School, the world's fastest-growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully-accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. The author states that it is here that the concept of corporate personality comes into its own, for it reminds us that associations are not just arbitrary groupings of people that the state can shape and destroy at will. They are the gift of freedom and responsibility. They are the ties that bind us, and we attribute personality to them in law because they already have personality in fact. They inherit some of the rights and duties of their members and also shape those rights and duties according to the aspirations that they embody. If our legislators were properly clear about this, they would recognize that it is not possible to deal with corporations as though they were of merely instrumental significance and as though their rights and freedoms were not bound up with the rights and freedoms of the individual. In the end, if the American Constitution is to fulfill its purpose of creating a society of free individuals, it must protect the personality of corporations too. It must realize that while associations are often means to some end, they are also, as persons, ends in themselves, with a claim to recognition and protection that sets limits to the legislator's power. To do any less 
is to threaten not just corporate rights, but the lives of individuals as well. This article describes some of what makes Americans, America's character and the exceptional qualities of America, which helps to define why America has become a world leader. The following article from PurgeCongress.com helps in defining what it means to be American. Under American exceptional, exceptionalism, our founders believed that American exceptionalism exceptionalism is the most important and most positive aspect that differentiates America from the rest of the world. It is worth the effort and the sacrifice to defend it. Following our excerpts from Wikipedia definition of American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, a term coined by Alex de Tocqueville in 1831, has been historically referred to as the perception that the United States differs qualitatively from other developed nations because of its unique origins, national credo, historical evolution, and distinctive political and religious institutions. American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States and the American people hold a special place in the world by offering opportunity and hope for humanity, derived from a unique balance of public and private interests governed by constitutional ideals that are focused on personal and economic freedom. It is close to the manifest destiny, a term used by Jackson Democrats in the 1840s, 1840s to promote the annexation of much of what is now the western United States or the Oregon Territory, the Texas annexation, and the Mexican secession. The term was then used in 1890s by Republicans as a theoretical justification for U.S. expansion outside of North America. Political science defines American exceptionalism as presence of unique traits in the United States, such as the tradition of anti-authoritarianism, individualism, a high regard for work and private enterprise, the failure of socialist parties, the geographical separation of the Americas from the rest of the world, the high levels of religious influence, particularly Protestant Christianity, that do not correlate with national characteristics in either the similarly developed nations of Western Europe and Scandinavia and Latin America or in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Some United States citizens loosely use the term to indicate a moral superiority of Americans, while others use it to refer to the American concept as itself an exceptional ideal, which may or may not always be upheld by the actual people and government of the nation. Researchers and academics, however, generally use the term to strictly mean sharp and measurable differences in public opinion and political behavior between Americans and their counterparts in other developed democracies. Americans are far more religious than Europeans, for example, and more likely to actively engage in politics. Repeated surveys also show that Americans are more likely to agree that with hard work one can get ahead. The concept is thus presented not as an expression of ideals, but as a set of measurable political facts. 
cases in their causes in their historical context. Supporters of American exceptionalism often describe the term as referring to a popularized cultural mythos that delivers the benevolent explanation for why and how American society succeeded. In essence, it claims that a deliberate choice of freedom over tyranny was properly made, and this was the central reason for why American society developed successfully Puritan roots. The earliest ideologies of English colonists in the country were the Protestants of the Puritan settlers of New England, Many Puritans with Armenian leanings embraced a middle ground between strict predestination and a looser theology of divine providence. They believed God made a covenant with their people and had chosen them to lead their other nations on the earth. The Puritan leader, John Winthrop, expressed this idea with the metaphor of a city on a hill that the Puritan community of New England should serve as a model community for the rest of the world. His metaphor is often used by proponents of exceptionalism. Although the Puritan worldview of New England itself changed dramatically, and although different Protestant traditions were strong in the Middle Colonies and the South, the Puritans' deep moralistic values remained part of the national identity for centuries and arguably remains so today. Although American exceptionalism is now primarily secular in nature, a portion of it stems from America's Puritan roots. The religious right, including evangelical and fundamentalist groups that have a heritage similar to Puritanism, currently are major proponents of exceptionalism. The American Revolution and Republicanism. Another event often cited as a milestone in the history of American exceptionalism is the American Revolution. The intellectuals of the revolution, Thomas Paine's common sense is the best example, for the first time expressed the belief that America was not just an extension of Europe, but a new land, a country of nearly unlimited potential and opportunity that was being abused by the British mother country they had outgrown. These sentiments laid the intellectual foundations for the revolutionary concept of American exceptionalism and was closely tied to republicanism, the belief that sovereignty belonged to the people, not to a hereditary ruling class. Imagination and availability of resources. Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States during a time of unprecedented growth. The United States was often seen as exceptional because of unlimited immigration policies and the vast resources of the land and land incentivization programs during much of the 19th century. Even though those programs are for the most part in the distant past, popular attitudes within the United States often link patriotism and nationalism to them. Many hold the view that... Excuse me, that the country is unique today because of what was done back then, the Cold War. American exceptionalism during the Cold War was often cast by the mass media as the American way of life, personifying liberty, engaged in a battle with tyranny as represented by communism. 
these attitudes made use of the residual sentiment that had originally formed to, to differentiate the United States from the 19th century European powers <clears throat> and had been applied multiple times in multiple contexts before it was used to differentiate capitalist democracies with the United States as a leader from communist nations. Aspects of Arguments for American Exceptionalism Those who believe in American exceptionalism argue that there are many ways that the United States clearly differs from European world from which it emerged, as well as other countries in the globe, Republican ethos and ideas about nationhood. Proponents of American exceptionalism agree that the United States is unique in that it was founded on a set of Republican ideals rather than on common heritage, ethnicity, or ruling elite. In the formulation of President Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address, America is a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In this view, being American is inextricably connected with loving and defending freedom and equal opportunity. As such, America has often acted to promote these ideas, ideals abroad, most notably in the First and Second World Wars and the Cold War. Critics argue that American policy in these conflicts was more motivated by economic or military self-interest than an actual desire to spread these ideals. Indeed, the United States is by no means the only country founded as a republic with such ideals, although it was perhaps the first such country. Brazil and the French Republic are examples. The United States polities polities have been characterized since their inception by a system of federalism and checks and balances, which were designed to prevent any person, faction, region, religion, or government or organ from becoming too powerful. Some American exceptionalists argue that this system and the accompanying distrust of concentrated power prevent the United States from suffering a tyranny of the majority, and also that it allows citizens to live in a locality whose laws reflect the citizens' values. A consequence of this political system is that laws can vary greatly across the country. Critics of American exceptionalism maintain that this system merely replaces the power of the national majority over states with power by the states over local entities. On balance, the American political system arguably arguably allows more local dominance but prevents more national dominance than does a more unitary system. Proponents of American exceptionalism often claim that the American spirit or the American identity was created at the frontier, as in Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis, where rugged and untamed conditions gave birth to American national vitality. Other nations that had long frontiers, such as Russia, Canada, and Australia, did not allow individualistic pioneers to settle there and did not experience the same psychological and cultural impact. Impact. The American Revolutionary War is claimed ideological territory of exceptionalists. The intellectuals of the revolution, such as Thomas Paine, arguably shaped America into a nation fundamentally different from its European ancestry, creating modern constitutional republicanism as we know it.
Good night, everyone, and have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings.